0: We need to sweeten things up in here, because this morning, I'm going to be preaching on one of the hardest topics that there is. Maybe you're thinking, you know, sin, hell, why bad things happen to good people, and you're second-guessing your decision to come early on a Christmas morning. But hear me out on this. I, I think one of the hardest things to preach on is on the subject of love, and we preach on it a lot. And maybe the reason we do is because it is so hard to get our hands and our heads around it. You might think the topic is easy, but it's not. One of the reasons it's hard is because, as you know, in our culture, love, the concepts around love have become, I don't know, kind of sloppy, overused, oversaturated. I mean, think about it. The, the word love we use to apply to some really huge ideas. I love justice. I love peace. I love my family. But we use the same word for small things. I love tacos. I love the Raptors even when they have a terrible record. I I, I love Avengers movies, all 85 of them or however many Dante we're up to now. We use the word for everything. And to make matters worse, it's something that gets used to package up and sell products to us, particularly this time of year. This is the season of Hallmark movies, right? Where the biggest conflicts, the the biggest mysteries around love are presented and solved in a nice little 90-minute package. And then there's the commercials, and there's the cards, and there's the products, and they're created to give us all these kind of fuzzy, warm feelings, and we associate that with Christmas. To be honest, I mean, some of you probably are hoping that you'll find the real thing. I'm looking for love this Christmas. Maybe through a, a serendipitous Christmas m- miracle. The kind of thing that, that makes a Hallmark movie run. You know, there's over, I checked it, over 100 million songs recorded with the word love in the title. I think half of them were written by Taylor Swift. But... <laughs> <laughs> then they go on to become breakup songs, and they become even more popular. On Amazon, there are over 80,000 books just on the topic of love. We are oversaturated with the word and the concept. We are overfamiliar, and so we're desensitized. And you hear, well, the sermon is going to be on love, and you think, like, okay, well, I'm checking, and I'm getting my waffle and my, my hot chocolate, and, and I'm out of here. Have you ever become numb to it? Is it just me? You become a little bit numb when you hear, when you use it, have become so numb because we've lost touch with what it actually means. See, I'm I'm concerned that we've lost something of the beauty and the power and the deeper meaning of love. And the problem is, as we become immune to it, we miss out how radical, uh, how adventurous, how, indeed, how life-changing the message was meant to be when it was packaged up and given at Christmas. We're in danger of the good news just becoming news. And so today, really, all I I intend to do for the three hours that I have you is, is guide you through a primer to discover the wonder of Christmas. And to start the conversation... I want to use what I think is sometimes an overlooked part of the Christmas story. We're not going to start with, with the star and the shepherds or the manger or the wise men. I want you to turn with me, if you have your Bibles, to a favorite Christmas verse of mine. And you don't find it in the Christmassy sections of the Bible. You're going to find it in 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 15. This is not the nativity scene. You don't think of it in light of the Christmas story, but I think it describes really in words that that beggar description what it is that God does for us. In fact, it's on the screen. Let's read it together. Thanks be to God for his indescribable gift. A little bit of background. Those words were written by a man named Saul, Saul of Tarsus, a brilliant intellect trained under the, the wisest, most reputed rabbi of the day, a man named Gamaliel, keen thinker, broad vocabulary, master of language, a formidable communicator. There are more of the writings of Saul who goes on to become Paul. There are more of his writings in the New Testament than anyone else, save Jesus, because the story is all about him. He is probably, after Jesus, the greatest theological mind that the world had ever seen. And yet when he comes to this word gift, he wants to talk about what God has done at Christmas. When it comes to this word gift, words fail him. He's looking for the right adjective and he can't find it. And so in the end, after he dips into his reservoir of knowledge and experience, he's left simply with a word that says there are no words. It is indescribable. I was looking through the lists of of words. You ever do this at the end of the year? What have been the trendy words for the year? Here are the, the words that were trending in 2022. Doesn't mean they're brand new. They were just popular. Gaslighting. Yeah. Truthiness. Yeah. Metaverse. Thank you, Zuckerberg. TBH, the acronym. You know what that stands for? You texters, to be honest. Isn't that nice that there's people trying to be honest in a world of truthiness and gaslighting? <laughs> fluffernutter. How did that one come back? Isn't a fluffer nutter a marshmallow sandwich? We have marshmallows at the back. If you want to make a fluffer nutter, two waffle biscuits, some marshmallows, dip it in your hot chocolate, and you are trendy as trendy gets this year. And how about this one? Staycation. Or the 2022 form, a co-vacation. And if you had I had a co-vacation for a couple of weeks there in October. But in this world that is rich with language, Paul here, he uses a word that, that's found nowhere else in Scripture. He coins a word that really is saying there are no words. It is indescribable. It's unable to be declared. Why is it indescribable? Because there's something about this gift of love that is too big for words. And it leaves us scratching our head, because after all, I mean, what is it? It's just a baby, isn't it? But if this had been just any other normal human conception, any other normal human infant, there'd be nothing indescribable about it. But this one was different. Turn with me for a second to the the Gospel of Luke in chapter 2. Here we have Dr. Luke continuing his account much like a physician would just filling out a report almost kind of matter of fact Luke 2 verse 6 and this is how it happened when they were there the days for her uh, the days were completed for her to give birth and she gave birth to her firstborn a son wrapped him in cloths laid him in a feeding trough there was no room for him in the inn that doesn't sound particularly glamorous does it? it sounds very describable here they were in a cave Maybe a few animals around covered in straw. But then something happens for the first time in all of time. A human being looks into the face of the Son of God. And standing somewhere nearby, bewildered, a man who had nothing to do with the conception, maybe Joseph hadn't put it all together yet, but he'd simply believed what God had said to him. You remember? God said, what has happened to this woman to whom you are betrothed is something from God. Believe me. Believe God. And so he did. Joseph, simple, practical, a carpenter, stands back in amazement, watches as she gives birth, places the child in the manger. But notice before they do that, well, they do this thing that new parents all get trained how to do. They wrapped him. They wrapped him. You remember that parents, you went to the sausage making class, how to wrap your baby so tight so it felt like they enjoyed the safe embrace of the womb, they wrapped him. For some reason this year, I got caught up in that imagery of wrapping the child over the past couple of days, because yeah, we left it too late. Our, our basement turned into a wrapping station, just a <laughs> blizzard of bows and tags and, and paper Everywhere, and when you're wrapping, you're trying to heighten the anticipation of the gift. Some people have a lot of fun wrapping. Any of you do the nest wrapping—a box inside a box inside a box inside a box until you finally get to the gift. One little tiny ring, not putting pressure on any of you. But uh, and then there are other gifts that you just you can't seem to wrap properly in a way that doesn't hide what they are—a hockey stick or a basset hound, or <laughs> a bicycle, whatever it is. But think for a second about that gift they wrapped in Bethlehem. How do you wrap up an indescribable gift? What material do you use? And I want to use that metaphor, if we could, to think beyond just the physical body, the infant child. They wrapped the baby Jesus in swaddling cloths. Much the same way we would now. They came prepared for that. But there was more to the wrapping around Jesus than just a bit of linen. This is a gift that came wrapped intricately and very strangely. And so we're going to look at three ways that Jesus came wrapped. That this indescribable gift of love came presented to the world. First, Jesus comes wrapped in prophecy prophecy. God doesn't just suddenly drop Jesus into the world. Heaven opens up, parachute, and there he is. The world had been preparing for this moment for centuries. Listen to a few of the the, the moments of preparation. If you have your Bible, turn with me to Isaiah. Isaiah, the the so-called prince of the prophets. Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14, familiar words. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign for behold, a virgin will be with child and bear a son, and she will call his name Emmanuel, God with us. Hundreds of years before Jesus was born, you wrap something indescribable in something as powerful as prophecy, and then you get generations of people anticipating his arrival, Listen to Isaiah 9, verse 6. A child will be born for us. Israel, listen up. Zion, get ready. Heaven is going to give us a son. And what will be his name? Well, the government will rest on his shoulders. His name shall be Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And there will be no end to the increase of his government or of his peace on the throne of David, or over his kingdom. He will establish it, he will uphold it with justice and righteousness from then on and forevermore. To whom would that refer, if not the Messiah? No one fits the description more than this little, carefully wrapped, indescribable gift. The Jewish people held on to these words, these prophecies, down through time. Don't forget about chapter 11, one of my favorites. A shoot will spring up from the stem of of Jesse, just a branch, a branch from its roots that will bear fruit and the spirit of the Lord will rest on him. He'll be distinct. He will be unique. And upon him will be the spirit of wisdom and understanding and counsel and strength. The spirit of knowledge and the fear of Jehovah. And he will delight in the fear of the Lord. He will not judge by what his eyes see, nor make decisions by what his ears hear. With righteousness he will judge the poor and decide with fairness for the afflicted of the earth. The Hebrew poetry is beautiful here. He will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, and with the breath of his lips he will slay the wicked. It all gets intensified. Righteousness will be his belt. Faithfulness will be about his waist. There is power in prophecy, is there not? Here we have a gift that comes through the womb of Mary, but ahead of time, there's all this prophecy that carries it forward. Righteousness will mark this young life. Godliness, the fear of the Lord with fairness, he will judge the poor and the rich alike. He'll be like no one else. Maybe there's a tendency to think that that Jesus just kind of appeared without warning and And so that means he appeared without planning or design or forethought. But that's not the case here. He's a shoot, a stem, a branch. He is connected to everything that God has done before. Let's have a look at just a couple of more of these prophetic wrappings that Jesus comes enshrined and shrouded in. Turn with me to Isaiah 53. Isaiah, he's at a loss when he's talking about this. Who will believe this message, Isaiah says. He's living among a people of unclean lips. He knows his times. He says, who has believed our message? To whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Everybody's waiting on tiptoes. When is, gonna, when is God going to act? When will the Messiah come? Describe him for us, Isaiah. We're listening. And here it comes. He will grow up before him like a tender shoot, like a root out of parched ground. He had no stately form. He had no majesty that we should look upon him, no appearance that we should be attracted to him. That's not what made Jesus significant. He was not a cover model for GQ magazine. He looked like any other Jewish male of his day. As a boy, he looked like any other carpenter's son. Nothing majestic about him in appearance. There was no shining glow, an aura that followed him around. It was God who came in the form of a man. But don't forget that doesn't mean that this is a man in the form of God. He drove a nail just like anybody else drove a nail. He worked with wood like other boys worked with wood. He wasn't a man from whom miracles fell all the time, not until his ministry began. Just a man in outward appearance. Why? Isaiah answers it. He was despised and forsaken, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. We did not esteem him. How do you wrap up an indescribable gift? In honest prophecy. Those are honest words. How do you prepare the heart of people for an indescribable gift? You wrap them in prophecy. Words like these ones. Micah 5, verse 2. As for you, Bethlehem, Ephrathah, too little to be among the clans of Judah. From you, Bethlehem, get ready. From your territory, from your streets, from you, Bethlehem, little Bethlehem, one will come forth to be the ruler in all Israel. And his goings forth are from long, long ago, from eternity. Can you imagine rabbis looking through that text, reading through the scrolls of Micah coming across these words, chapter 5, verse 2, and, and reading and, and rubbing their beards and thinking, my, my, something's going to happen in Bethlehem. But you see, we've got a problem. We have a problem right off because the couple who are involved in this aren't from Bethlehem. They're from Nazareth. Nazareth, way over here. Bethlehem, way over here separated by mountains and treacherous river roads, and most importantly, by Samaria. Israelites don't go through Samaria. No good person goes through Samaria. And so you have a problem. And so not only is this baby wrapped in prophecy, this baby is going to come wrapped in a little bit of history. And the history is really quite fantastic how all the circumstances of history line up. Turn with me in the book of Galatians, in chapter 4, if you would. This indescribable gift, wrapped up in history. Prophecy, being what it is, has to be woven into history. And that's God's job, and he is a master of it. Taking prophecy and weaving it into human history, because he's sovereign over time. He knows what's going on. And so he begins to weave history and dovetail it in together with prophecy. And skeptics, maybe they just laugh at that sort of thing. But listen, Galatians 4, four. When the fullness of time came, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, that he might buy back those who were under the law. I want you to think with me about those words, in the fullness of time exactly on schedule, precisely as it should have been. And at no better time could this have occurred. Why, though? Why is it that things seem to mesh together so perfectly? What made this the sacred moment in history when a young woman becomes pregnant? What is it about this history that gets wrapped around Jesus? let me suggest to you a few things about the world into which Jesus was born. The world was at a turning point. Sheldon mentioned at the beginning the hinge of history. This really was a pivot point in history, in the progress of the world. If you had a message for the whole world, how do you get it out? You must have a language that you can use to convey it across borders and nations. But there hadn't been one. Not since Babel. Remember that whole account, the Tower of Babel, and the scattering of people, and the the explosion of languages? The world was filled with languages. There was no single linguistic bullet that you could fire across borders in order to get a message out. It was just a hodgepodge. But then came a man. Alexander was his name. Alexander who, and I don't know whether he picked the great for himself or it was picked about him, but Alexander the Great who, who, who really changed the map of the world and brought it under a single linguistic domain. Everybody began to speak one language, a common language. Koine Greek, which is just common Greek. And for the first time, you have language that is specific enough and universal enough that you can carry a message anywhere you went. And if you're going to get a message from here to there, you also need to be able to get from here to there easily. So the other thing that Alexander and later Rome did was they built roads. They built roads everywhere. And suddenly the teeming mass of humanity could move freely through the world. And with them, they could take messages. That's the way God works. Did you know God was in the construction business? I'd like to get him out here on Cawthor Road, actually, sometimes. but (laughs) Paved roads that tied together east and west. All of this happening in the fullness of time. What about the politics of that day? You had language. You had transport. What about politics? You had a very unusual situation brimming in that part of the world. When a megalomaniac ruler decided that it was tax time and they want to get the revenue up. I know governments this day would never conceive of such a plan to get tax revenue up, but that was the idea. And that started by figuring out how many people you've got. Let's get a count. And in getting the count, let's get the coffers full. Only to do this properly, you had to get people back to where they started. And so on those roads that Rome had built, using the language that people shared, people began to move. They were required to go back to their ancestral hometown. And this little couple from Nazareth over here make the long, tumultuous journey to the ancestral hometown of Joseph, which is Bethlehem. One other curious feature about Bethlehem, guess who else came from there? King David. The most beloved king in the history of God's people. They shared a lineage. The Bible says Jesus came in the fullness of time. At just the right moment. When everything, the politics, the language, the transport system. When everything coalesced. In just such a way. That when good news was given. It could spread like match in a tinderbox. And it did. It exploded into the world. The child comes wrapped in prophecy, wrapped in history, but there's one more thing, and you can't leave it out it's mystery. The baby Jesus comes wrapped up in mystery. If you take away the mystery of it, you kind of lose that that indescribableness of Christmas. You have a prophetic word from Isaiah and Micah and Zephaniah and Zechariah and Malachi and John the Baptizer and a host of others all saying the same thing. The Messiah is coming. God is on the loose. Get ready. There is something about to be delivered without comparison. History is unfolding in our day. Rome comes to power, pushes down little Israel like a boot stepping on soft soil. Israel wonders, she screams out, will the Messiah come at last? And here he is, clad in regal armor, riding on horseback, sword in hand, except, except that's not how he comes, is it? He comes in mystery. What's the mystery about a baby? Well, you can think of it in a few ways. Think about God becoming visible in human form in the ways that we understand humanity. It starts there as a child. We're used to the words, but they had never heard them before. And realistically, we'd never heard them the same way since. That God would come to earth, the ineffable presence of deity on earth, and yet not be contaminated by the experience That's the mystery of it all. Father, Son, Spirit, co-eternal, co-existent, co-equal. This indescribable moment. Here's how John puts it at the beginning of his Gospel. The Word became flesh, you know this, and dwelt among us, full of grace and truth. If I were to put on a theologian's hat a little bit, Ron, this is how a theologian would describe the moment. Undiminished deity takes upon himself perfect humanity, links the two natures together into one personality housed in one unique body, God and man delivered. No less deity, no less humanity, but fused together in one, in one body. That's a mystery. And I wonder if anybody ever captured it more beautifully than Charles Wesley. Hmm. Who? Yeah. Charles Wesley was a hymn writer. Wrote hundreds and hundreds of them, but wrote this one especially. You you know these words. You say them with me. Christ by highest heavens adored. Christ the everlasting Lord. Late in time behold him come. Offspring of the virgin's womb. Veiled in flesh the Godhead see. Hail the incarnate deity. Pleased as man with man to dwell. Jesus our Emmanuel. Who says theology can't be worshipful. Here he is. Strangely wrapped. In history and prophecy and mystery something wondrous delivered into the world. I want to fast forward you ahead just one last time in the minute that we have and look at the little bit of the epilogue of the Christmas story. The event had happened. The news gets proclaimed. The first to hear it was this wandering group of Bedouins, shepherds, Luke chapter 2, verse 15. Let's look what happened there. Luke 2, 15 says, When the angels had left them and gone into heaven, the shepherds all said to each other, Hey, let's go back to Bethlehem. Let's see this thing that's happened. This thing that the Lord has told us about. And they went and they found their way to Mary and Joseph. They found the baby there in the feeding trough. And when they'd seen it, what is it that they said? Did they use their own words? No, this is indescribable. They could only quote what they had been seen and what they'd been told. Verse 17, they made known the statement, the things that had been told to them about this child. The Christmas story is only ever repeated in God's way, in God's words, time after time, in prophecy, in history, in mystery. are people today who are still waiting for something else, still looking for something else, still anticipating another gift, another answer, another provision. The answer was beautifully and intricately given. There's nothing original about the message today because there's nothing that should be original about Christmas. All we ever do is repeat. We are like wandering Bedouin out in the field saying, The gift has arrived. Here it is. Receive him. So we gather today to do that. In worship, in prayer, in feasting, in embracing, in celebrating God's indescribable gift. Worship team, will you come lead us?